Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth Narrated by John McDonough Preface The reader may rest assured that the narratives contained in this volume are substantially true. To this many persons now living in the neighborhood can testify. The names mentioned are real names, both of persons and places. Some of them have again arisen from my connection with the Chapel for the Destitute. I am surprised at and thankful for the reception given to the first volumes, both at home and abroad. Few books have had so wide a circulation in so short a time, and the tales of this volume in the tract form have met with a similar welcome. I have many hundreds of letters from persons of nearly all religious persuasions testifying to the good received from reading these humble narratives. I am a tradesman and make no pretension to literary ability. I wish to acknowledge the goodness of God and to be very thankful that He condescends to use me in any way as a medium of good to others. And to him my prayer still is, Hold thou my right hand. John Ashworth, Broadfield, Rochdale, January 1st, 1866. My new friends, London, the best and worst place in the world the vast emporium of human energy for good or for evil. How many thoughts are suggested by its mighty operations? Its wealth and benevolence seem boundless, its poverty and misery hopeless. Yet light and truth, contending with error and darkness, gain daily triumphs. The black cloud of moral depravity is giving way before the bright beams flowing from Christian sympathy and hope sits smiling whilst contemplating the cheering result. I have travelled the streets of the great city by night and by day, beholding both its magnificence and its misery. I have walked through its palaces, parks, and picture galleries, its asylums, hospitals, prisons, and penitentiaries. But no place produced so deep an impression on my mind as the home for the destitute. Here hardened villainy and hopeless wretchedness were written on every countenance. All the woes of the apocalypse seemed to have overtaken the truly miserable inmates. I felt that they were all my brothers and sisters, and I felt too that sin, in some of its forms, had been productive of all this degradation. I also felt a degree of veneration for the men whose Christian philanthropy had provided such a home. I was sure infidelity had not done it, for infidelity never yet lifted a finger to lessen human sorrow or mitigate human woe in any age or in any country. Love to God and love to man are inseparably connected." that the gospel of Christ, applied by the Spirit, could reclaim every one of the miserable beings before me, I had not the slightest doubt. 
in all towns hundreds of such are to be found, who never hear the gospel, and who never attend either our churches or our chapels. Is it not the duty of every man whose heart God has touched to do all he can for the redemption of such? If they will not come to us, then we must go to them, meet them on their own terms, and provide them with places of worship adapted to their own condition, trying in the spirit of love to gather in the outcast and to tell them the tale of the cross. These reflections induced me to make a vow that, on my return to Rochdale, I would at once open a chapel for the destitute. I consulted my friends, and endeavoured to enlist them in the undertaking. What, says one, are you going to teach the poor that our churches are not open to them? We have plenty of room. Why do they not come? What, says another, are you going to widen the distance betwixt the rich and the poor by opening for them separate places of worship? You will do more harm than good. What, said a third, do you expect to get a congregation from amongst the degraded? If you tap a barrel of ale every Sunday, you may, but not otherwise. I am now ashamed to say that, meeting with the above objections, and finding none to help me, I gave up the undertaking. But several years after, while labouring under affliction, I remembered my broken vow, and again resolved that, if the Lord would deliver me, I would do all I could to bring sinners from the highways and hedges. I prayed earnestly that he would give me grace and firmness of purpose to endure any amount of ridicule, abuse, misrepresentation, opposition, or imposition, that he would take money matters entirely into his own hands and send pecuniary help as it might be required. Believing that God would bless the undertaking, I determined not to consult any human being but go at once to work, depending upon God's help and blessing. I took a small room, and got two thousand handbills printed, worded as follows. Chapel for the Destitute Near the bank steps, Bailey Street, Rochdale Ye houseless, homeless, friendless, penniless outcasts, come! In rags and tatters come. Ye poor and maimed and halt and blind come. Of whatever colour or nation, creed or no creed come. Jesus loves you and died to save you. Come then to him, all ye wretched, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. No collections. All we seek is your welfare, both body and soul. Service every Sunday evening at a quarter past six. Come, poor sinner, come and welcome. Fifty of these bills were fixed on blue pasteboard with a small loop of red tape at the top. With nails in one pocket and a hammer in the other, 
I went to all the barber's shops and lodging houses in the town, requesting permission to hang up the cards. In no place was I refused, and I returned home in the evening rejoicing over my success. One Sunday morning, to me a memorable Sunday morning, with about five hundred bills in my pocket, I began to walk through the back streets and low places, and where I saw either man or woman in dirt or rags, I offered them a bill and respectfully requested them to come to the service. If they could not read the bill, I read it for them. Some made merry with it, others stared at me, but very few promised to come. Soon after dinner, I entered one lodging house and asked permission to see the inmates. I was shown into a large room containing sixteen persons. I pulled off my hat, bowed to the company, and began to distribute my bills. One young man, with a short pipe in his mouth, twisted my paper into a spill to light his tobacco, then burst out laughing, and began to dance a jig in the midst of the floor. Without seeming to take notice of his having burned my bill, I said, You can dance well. Can you do anything else so cleverly? Yes, I am the first greater at everything, was his answer. Well, let me hear if you can read this paper as well as you can dance. He took the bill, pulled the pipe out of his mouth, stood on an old wooden-bottomed chair, and began with a theatrical bearing and a loud voice to read. But when he came to the words, Jesus loves you and died to save you, his voice faltered. He quietly stepped down and laid the paper on the chair, observing, I wish I had not read that. It reminds me of better days. Seeing the dancer break down, there was a general call for Jenny Lind. The person honoured by that name was partaking of a tea dinner in the corner. She earned her bread by singing in the streets and public houses. Jenny took the bill and read it through, and amidst the clapping of hands, resumed her tea dinner. A surly-looking man with a flat nose and bloodshot eyes growled out, I thought there was naught in heaven, earth, or hell that cared for us, but it seems there is somebody does. Yes, I replied, that paper is true. Jesus loves you and died to save you, and I, his servant, am come to tell you of his love. Now which of you will be the first to promise to be at the chapel for the destitute tonight? This was met with a loud laugh from all the company, one of them observing, That's a capital joke! Here let me further describe the characters I was trying to induce to attend a place of worship. I have mentioned the dancing man, the flat-nosed man, and the singing woman called Jenny Lind. In addition to these, there was one they called Pegleg. This man was polishing his wooden leg with the black lead brush. On asking him why he did not use blacking, he replied that black lead made his trousers slip up and down better. There was a thin man 
with thick black hair well greased with oil. He had a piece of a broken looking-glass in his hand, and was trying to divide his hair in the middle, seeming very particular about it. One man, Collier-like, sat on his heels beside the fire. He had a long black beard and a dirty, ragged red slop for a shirt. There were two old men, both poorly dressed, but one of them much cleaner than the other. The cleaner one had a large pair of spectacles on his forehead, and a grey-headed old woman for his wife. All the rest of the lodgers were fit companions of the above, but those more particularly specified we shall have to refer to again. Wishing to get someone to volunteer, I laid my hand on the shoulder of the thin man who was trying to divide his hair, and requested him to give a challenge to the whole house. There was a general shout from all that if I got him, I should have the worst in the lot. They should like to see Bill Guest in a chapel. Yes, said the wooden-leg man, if Bill goes, I go. And me, said the flat-nosed man. And me, said the red slop. And me, said Jenny Lind. And me, said the old man with the large spectacles. Bill very coolly observed that they had better mind what they were doing, or he would surprise some of them. But the whole fifteen declared they would go if he went. Then I go, said Guest, and now let me see which of you dare show the white feather. We bargained that I was to call for them at six o'clock to show them the way. The next place of call was in a miserable-looking house in which sat three men on a short plank supported by a few bricks. There was no other seat in the place. A square table with only two legs, and which I unwittingly upset, was reared against the wall. A few broken pots and an old rusty knife were all the furniture in the house. They offered to go with me to the chapel if I would pay for a gallon of ale. One of them said he never went to chapel except when he was in prison, and he rather boasted of having been there six times. He was literally clothed in rags, and was without a shirt. He offered to give up his share in the gallon of beer, and go with me to the chapel, if I would send him a shirt. "'Now I have you,' said he, laughing. "'Send me a shirt, and I go.' "'And will you bring your friends with you, if I do?' I asked. "'Yes,' said they all. "'We will come if you find him a shirt.' They seemed greatly amused with the fix in which they had placed me, but a few minutes after I rather astonished them by producing a clean shirt. I do not say how I got it, but I did not buy it. My next adventure was among a number of idlers on the stone bridge. While giving them my bills, a blustering young man, dirty, but expensively dressed, came up, and wanted to know what my papers were about. I handed him one, he read it, and then said, "'Mr. Ashworth, look at me. 
You see a man that deserves damnation, if ever man did. I am the unworthy son of the best of fathers and mothers. They set me a good example, but I got amongst wicked companions, have spent in cursed drink hundreds of pounds, wandered from home, and now I am a wretched outcast. But if you are a wanderer from home, and not a Rochdale man, how do you know me? I asked. I heard you give an address in Bury last April, and heard you point out the curse that tracks the steps of those that dishonor their parents, and believing you intended it for me, I felt at the time that I could have shot you. But all you said is true. There is a dark lookout for every young man and woman who willfully cause sorrow to their parents, especially if they are like mine. Will you come to the chapel tonight? There is mercy for the worst if they earnestly seek it. Yes, I will come, but I shall never have mercy until I repent of my conduct to my parents. It was now five o'clock. In an hour and a quarter, I should have to meet my first congregation at the chapel for the destitute. I went home to tea, but could not eat. I went upstairs, and falling on my knees, poured out my soul to God for help. Lord, help me! Lord, help me! was all I could say, though I remained long in prayer. Exactly at six, I called on my sixteen friends at the lodging-house. My entrance was the signal for a general move. Bill Guest had finished dividing his hair, and had done his best to look smart. Boz, or Boswell, had fitted on his leg, and all were instantly ready. Not one had shown the white feather. They laughed at each other, and were all greatly excited. "'Who will lead up?' was bawled out by the Red Slop Man, and it was agreed we should go two abreast, I and Boz, the wooden-legged man, being the first. In this order we marched down King Street, over the Iron Bridge, through the butts, to the preaching-room. All the way we attracted much attention, some remarking that we were the awkward squad, others that we were going to the rag-shop, whilst others exclaimed, "'That bangs all!' But what was to them a cause of merriment was to me a source of great anxiety. As I walked quietly on with the wooden-legged man, I could not keep back my tears. "'Lord, help me!' was still my earnest prayer. On my arrival at the room, I found my friend with the new shirt and his two companions had already taken their seats, also three well-known characters. Liss Dick, Leech, and Sprowl. Two shillings would have been a good price for the wardrobe of all three. They were soon followed by the prodigal son and four others, in all twenty-seven persons. I had provided the Religious Tract Society's penny hymn-book, and handed one to each. Then, taking my place behind a table, 
I gave out the page. Few could find the hymn, but all pretended to do so, and when I set the tune, the old hundred, I found that not one of the men, and only one of the women, could join in singing, and that one was the so-called Jenny Lind. I could have well dispensed with her help, for she began singing before she knew what the tune was, and she had a screeching voice, the effect of which on my nerves was something like that produced by the sharpening of a saw with a file. This caused a general titter through the congregation. I had intended to sing five verses, but was glad to give up with three. What Jenny's success was in singing in the streets and public houses I know not, but I know I was afraid to join her a second time, though my friends give me credit for being a tolerably good singer. So ludicrous had been the whole performance that many of the congregation were almost convulsed with suppressed laughter, and I did not think it prudent to engage in prayer until they were in a more serious state of mind so I requested them to sit down. I then began to tell them all about my reasons for beginning a place of worship for the destitute, of my visit to London, what I saw there, and the vow I made, told them how I had broken the vow, been afflicted, and again vowed and prayed for help, told them of my own conversion to God, how long I had served Him, and how happy I was in his love, but above all told them of the love of Jesus Christ in dying to save their souls from hell and bring them to heaven, pointed out the dreadful consequences of rejecting God's mercy and the misery of a life of sin, and besought them all at once to seek salvation through the shed blood of the Redeemer. I have spoken to many congregations, but to none more attentive than these twenty-seven. Oh, how my soul did yearn in love to those miserable beings, the young prodigal, the wanderer from home, the wretched son of praying parents, writhed in agony. Some wept, and all were serious. I then proposed prayer and told them that they might stand, sit, or kneel, just as they liked, but they all knelt down, and ere we rose, the Spirit of God worked with power. Listick and the old man with the large spectacles remained on their knees after all the others had risen. They both afterwards confessed that they had not prayed for years before. During the following week, in all my walks on business, I had my pockets stuffed with my handbills. Whenever I saw a certain class of females, tramps, hawkers, rag-and-bone dealers, scavengers, donkey drivers, or any of the miserable-looking beings that are too numerous in all towns, I contrived to get into conversation with them, and then gave them one of my papers. Several nights I went to visit the various lodging-houses to make new friends. Many writers have attempted to describe the character of the wandering tribes of England, who in their strange, wild, exciting life travel under a thousand pretenses from town to town, spending their evenings in lodging-houses, 
and mostly found in the ancient parts of all towns, where buildings are low-rented and the inhabitants the most squalid and miserable. Common lodging-houses are always the most numerous, and the best supplied with customers. Crowds of strange faces drop in for one or two nights, and pass away to make room for others. Amongst these wanderers we find almost every conceivable character, and here the student in physiognomy or moral philosophy will find an ample field for investigation. One house which I visited contained about twenty inmates when full. There were three large lower rooms. One of them was called the house, another contained a little furniture, and was for the more respectable lodgers. The larger one was dignified with the title of traveller's room. This contained nothing but forms, wooden chairs, and under the window a large, almost worn-out table. Here I have spent many hours amongst both old and newcomers, and on this occasion there was a fair specimen of the nomadic tribes. Simpering sellers of religious tracts, knitters of nightcaps, makers of whimwams and pincushions, a band of German musicians, and an organ man with a monkey, a blind man with a leading dog, not so blind but he could see to fry beefsteaks and onions, an old woman travelling to see her only daughter, whom she had been seeking for two years, and had made it pay well, another woman begging for money to repair a broken mangle, for which she had been three times in prison, a tall broken-down schoolmaster with a red nose and battered hat, an old man and his wife travelling to their own parish with a bottle of rum to help them on their way, a young dandy with a ruffled shirt and dressed in seedy black, a quack doctor and three women in search of their husbands, whom they had searched for so long that they had very brown faces, one of them had received a black eye from her husband the previous evening, Almost every one of these were impostors, and a fair specimen of the frequenters of low lodging-houses. The red-nosed schoolmaster, suspecting my errand, wished to argue a few points in religion, pompously proclaiming himself a clever man on all controverted points, having never yet found his match in any encounter. I replied that I always endeavoured to avoid clever men, and wished to be excused. But this did not satisfy the seedy-looking champion, for he was determined to have a tilt. However, he condescendingly offered to let me off with answering the following question. How could there be a just providence, when men, possessing scarcely any learning, and almost as ignorant as Hottentots, should greatly prosper in this world, while a man of his intelligence and abilities should be in poverty and rags. When I replied that his red nose would furnish him with the true elucidation of his problem, there was a loud burst of laughter from all the travellers in which the schoolmaster heartily joined. 
On the following Sunday morning, I went quietly through all the back streets and low parts of the town, where I found many groups of the unwashed, and in all places my custom was to ask for the best reader and request him or her to read aloud the invitation. I took care to keep good-tempered, and in all cases treated them with respect. This had a good effect, and made my work more agreeable. One wretched-looking man that I fell in with informed me that he had been a Sunday scholar until he was fourteen, that one Sabbath day he and another boy agreed to run away from the school, and neither had ever been there since. He deeply regretted this sin of his youth, and said, If someone had shot me or cut my throat the day I ran away from the Sunday school, it would have been a great mercy, for I got amongst bad companions that very day. I have been five times in prison, lost my character and friends, and am now living a vagabond's life. It seems you do not know one of your old schoolfellows, I observed, he looked me full in the face, and for a moment seemed confused. At last, he said, Is it John? Yes, my dear friend, it is John, one of your old classmates, who has never left the Sunday school, and who, as a consequence, has received thousands of blessings. But if I had run away as you did, I might have suffered as you have. Poor man! He seemed greatly moved by the difference of our circumstances, and promised to be at the destitute in the evening. Evening came, and it was again a time of much nervousness and great anxiety. Oh, how weak I felt! As the time grew near, I was restless and excited. I went to the room before the time, and I do not need to tell any minister of the gospel what I was doing while the people came. At length I heard the wooden leg, and a tramping of many feet coming down the passage. The company consisted of Boz, Bill Guest, and the other inmates of Smith's lodging house. My friend of the new shirt came in with his waistcoat pinned up to the chin, and the moment I saw him I suspected that this, the most valuable part of his wardrobe, was gone. After service I laid my hand on his shoulder, and smilingly said, Briarly, where is your shirt? He blushed greatly, and replied, I thought you could not see I was without, as I had penned up. Yes, I could see. Now tell me, what have you done with it? I popped it for sixpence, to buy a pennyworth of sugar, three halfpence worth of tea, and two pounds of bread for my poor old mother, for who was starving. I have drunk and drunk till I had liked to clamped her to death, and if it had not been for the parish, pay who would have been clamped to death of her now? Well, you did right to see to your mother, but we must have the shirt back. "'so you will call in the morning, and you shall have it again.' "'He called, and I gave him a note to the pawnbroker, "'for I could not trust him with the money. "'He soon returned with the bundle. 
I advised him never to take anything to pawn again. The answer I got was, Did you ever know anybody at once begun poppin' ever gior? It is somewhat like drinkin'. If they once begin, dram shops and pop shops are brothers. Two of the newcomers, the second Sunday evening, consisted of a thin, grey-haired old man and a little thick-set man. Both were in rags. The short man drove a donkey cart, had been a good fighter and drinker. He could not read, though he was sixty years of age. Taking them all together, I had again a strange congregation, and now that Jenny Lind was gone, I was the only one that tried to sing, for though I set the most common tunes, none of them could help me. This night I ventured to take for my text Mark chapter 5, verse 19. Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. I divided my subject as follows. One, the man here mentioned had a devil in him. Two, he came to Christ to have it taken out. Three, Christ cast out the devil and sent the man to tell his friends about it. Four, Christ still casts out devils, if we will come to him. I told them that there were swearing devils, drinking devils, lying devils, thieving devils, filthy devils, Sabbath-breaking devils, and idle devils, that when Christ cast them out, he did not cast them out one at a time, but all at once. And I tried to show them how happy the man must be that gets rid of all these devils by coming to Christ." On asking them to examine themselves, in order to find out which of these devils possessed them, List Dick, with much feeling, called out, All of them! Boz, the wooden leg man, and Clough, the donkey cart driver, both date their conversion from that night. Week after week, and month after month I continued to visit the lodging places, places of questionable morality, cellars, garrets, and all other places where outlaws could be found. I also went amongst the market loungers, anywhere and everywhere likely to provide me with outcasts of society. The result was that my room or chapel, as it was called, was filled with the poor and miserable, and my house with beggars, rogues, and vagabonds. And now began the real trial of my faith, and the dreadful strain on my patience. I had prayed at the beginning of my undertaking that God would enable me to brave any amount of ridicule, scorn, misrepresentation, abuse, or imposition. And now all this came upon me like a hurricane. I had begun Thursday evening services for the destitute, in addition to those held on the Sunday. At both times I had numbers of tramps from other towns, for the news had spread to all the miserable places of resort, and one traveller told another that I was good for a night's lodging and a penny, which for some time was really true. 
The overseers, guardians, and magistrates said that I was filling the town with riffraff. The governors of the workhouses were ready to mob me, declaring that I was filling their places with dying paupers. Some of my good friends said, as I could not be king amongst lions, I was determined to reign amongst donkeys. Lodging house keepers came to make friends with me, wishing me to recommend their establishments, which they assured me were very respectable and clean. The idle, the dirty, and the miserable came in shoals for advice and to get money. Neighbouring shopkeepers often brought me eighty threepenny pieces for a sovereign, or paper parcels of copper for five shillings. Some weeks I had several hundred ragged customers. In fact, I was doing a roaring trade. But that which was most painful to bear came from some of my brethren in the church, with whom I had been labouring as a lay preacher and Sunday school teacher for more than twenty years. They spoke of me in derision as the parson of the destitute, calling me crotchety, telling people to wait a little, and they would soon see what they would see. I never replied to any of these cutting observations, for I thought they really believed what they said. But I am thankful to say that for near five years I have not swerved one hair's breadth from my purpose of trying to do good to the dregs of society, and that strength has been given me according to my day. But I had one sympathizer, Mr. Mason, a machine-maker, a gentleman in the neighborhood, who employed a great number of hands. I succeeded in inducing him to take many of the wandering mendicants as laborers, in order that the experiment might be tried if it was possible to reclaim them. Now I am coming to a dark chapter in the history of my new friends. I wish I could conscientiously have left it out, but honesty says, give both sides of the question black and white. Well then, black first. From amongst one week's callers, I selected seven men whom I considered the most likely to turn out well, and agreed with them to become common labourers, at fifteen shillings per week. Three of them I had to provide with second-hand jackets, and two with trousers, before they were fit to be seen, for they all seven looked like bundles of rags. Six of them turned up the following morning at six o'clock. They called at my shop, and I went with them to work. The foreman of the works, being a Christian man, entered heartily into the undertaking, spoke kindly to them, and set them all to work at what they could easily do. But the master insisted that I should call daily to see them, pay their wages, and he would refund the money. I bargained to give them a shilling every night, and the balance on Saturday, and I told them that, as they had been so long idling, they had better only make four days the first week, five the second, and six the third, lest they should break down. After seeing them at work, I went to the lodgings of the seventh man, to see what had become of him.'
for he was one of the three for whom I had bought a jacket, and was the strongest looking of the party. I found him eating toast and beefsteaks. On asking him how it was he had not gone to work, he snapped his fingers, saying, If I begin working, I shall have to keep at it, and I know a trick worth two of that. This man has since been transported for housebreaking. The six men worked four and a half days the first week, and five days the second. On the Saturday of the second week, they had earned twelve and sixpence each. I commended them for their good conduct, but fearing the consequences of paying them in full, I requested they would draw only what they absolutely needed, and make me their banker, but they all refused. One of them returned in a few hours to tell me he had bought a second-hand pair of shoes and a waistcoat, observing, I now feel a different man, and intend to lead a different life. Before twelve o'clock that same night, he was in prison for being drunk and breaking windows. On the Monday morning I was passing through Haywood, a small town about three miles from Rochdale, when to my astonishment I saw three of my men walking very slowly in the middle of the street with doleful faces, singing a mournful song about being out of work and starving for bread. I stepped off the footpath, and meeting them full in the face, said, "'Good morning! How is it you are not at work?' Without waiting to reply, they all took to their heels, and I have never seen them since." A tramp that knew them all recently informed me that one of them had died in a workhouse, and the other two have been frequently sent to various prisons as rogues and vagabonds. Four of my men were now gone. About the middle of the third week, a fifth enlisted in the militia, and at the end of the same week, the sixth left his work to resume a roving, wandering life. Mr. Mason laughed heartily at my failure, but on my telling him that I had one very hopeful case, he agreed I should continue my experiment. The hopeful case was a tall, strong-looking young man, well known amongst the block printers of Accrington, by the name of Jam. After the evening service at the destitute, a man came to request me to go and see a dying man in Turner's lodging-house, Church Lane. I found the poor man in a deplorable state, got warm bricks to his feet, sent for the doctor, and paid a person for attending him. In two days he was pronounced out of danger. I bought him a shirt, a flannel, a coat, and a pair of stockings, nursed him for three weeks, and believed I was the means of saving a poor brother, both body and soul. When the last man of the six had fled, Jam was ready for work, and I got him to the machine shop at fifteen shillings per week. For an entire month he kept to business, and I was exulting in my success when Jam ran off with a tramp woman, and both of them got lodgings in Preston Jail. 